Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, in which food tells a much deeper story. This week I'm at Blue Hill, deep in the countryside of New York, with one of the most influential chefs in the world, Dan Barber. In his book, The Third Plate, he wrote a manifesto in food, taking us right back to the roots and how it can tell a new story. And it's already changed the way many chefs all over the globe are thinking about the way we eat. There, there's an argument to be made for top-down, and um, I think that's what you're talking about, and that's a role that chefs and restaurants can play in the future of good food. But before we meet Dan, this month we're finding out about Superlooper, the children's clothing rental business that could save the planet. Founder Jenny Barrett tells us more about this revolution in retail. Just because we're trying to reduce production and disposal of clothes, it doesn't mean that um, we can't have loads of lovely things to wear. So renting clothes for just as long as you need before returning them to be enjoyed by someone else perfectly fits that picture. It saves resources, money, space and time. So what's not to love? And we'll find out more about this brilliant idea each week through February. Now, Dan Barber is fundamentally challenging the culture around food, its creation and its waste, from seed right through to silencing his guests at his Blue Hill restaurants in New York with his genius on the plate. His vision, The Third Plate, is about valuing everything that goes into that mouthful, educating everyone from farmer to diner about what food is really made of. I asked him what his third plate looks like. Yeah, the third plate is an interpretation of where I had thought when I was doing the research for the book, I needed to go as a chef. It was uh, an architectural conceit of a plate uh, that had vegetables taking center stage and and meat being more of a supporting actor. Um, And the third plate comes off of what I consider to be the first plate uh, of American westernized conception of food, which is, which is protein centric. Meat and two veg. Yeah. Six or seven ounces of, of, of protein with a smattering of, of grains or vegetables. Um, And the second plate though, is the interesting one because the second plate is the plate that, that we, Americans, food-conscious Americans, have adopted with farm-to-table, uh, which is to say, your meat is grass-fed and your vegetables are organic and your grains are whole and local and whatnot. But the architecture plate remains the same. Um, so you're still eating your six ounces of uh, of protein and your 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 smattering of vegetables, and it's a it's a better transaction, a, a, a more holistic, a more ecological, a, a tastier deal. But uh, it's not going to move us to where we need to go in our relationship with our landscapes. Um, and so, the, so the third plate was a was a, a reconfigurement of, of of that architecture. At Blue Hill, you serve 20 to 30 courses, $238 a head. You attract the, 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 some of the most powerful people probably in the world to your restaurant. How close are you to that vision of the third plate now? Well, now we're closed, so I'm, I'm pretty far away from it. But before COVID, I mean, I, the, the book helped, you know, helped giving, gave, helped to give me a kind of North Star on how we construct and think about plates and our relationship to 
farms and 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 farming. I mean, I, I, I um, you know, I, it, it it allowed it allowed me to have this kind of vision for the architecture of a plate, which I had always, you know, we had always supported vegetables and grains uh, heavily on our menus. But I have learned that the best tasting vegetables and grains tend to come from farms that also have livestock on them, um, and and so including animal agriculture. Uh, in the cuisine is important uh, and 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 not just defensible but delicious um, and for my environment, the northeast and these long winters uh, and shorts relatively short summers, animal agriculture is a, a, an enormously important part of uh, of the landscape yeah now let 's just really pin this down. It is about climate you know when you were writing about the third place, it was much more about creating delicious food that came from the terroir. Uh, as we know it from from wine, for example, but it's about the land speaking. It's a it's about the storytelling on the plate. That's how we started. But since then, it's very much more about climate change. It's joining the dots. It's about really rethinking absolutely everything to do with what we put in our mouths. But for you, it starts with delicious doesn't it and i want to go straight into your first food moment where you really explain how that works for you and how that kind of launched everything that we know about you one evening when a man by the name of michael mazurik uh, a squash breeder from cornell university came to eat in my restaurant i invited him into the kitchen and i'd heard he was a very talented young breeder and just in the off-cuff moment we were looking at a butternut squash which is in america the number one selling squash, winter squash, 85% of the squash market. And I said, if you're such a great squash breeder, why don't you breed a butternut squash that actually tastes good? You know, why do we have to caramelize it? And why do we have to add sugars and maple syrup and honey to, to you know, and all these recipes to eke out anything that, that you know, resembles a tasty squash? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and sort of adjusted his glasses and paused and said, I've, I've never bread a butternut squash that tastes good because i've never been asked to select anything for flavor and that's sort of like you know that's when the curtains went down it was a before and after moment for me because i i recognized right then that if he's not being asked to select for flavor you know then then how in the world even in the hands of the best possible farmers best soil best rotations um best weather conditions if the genetics aren't there to explain to be expressed, then they're not going to be expressed. And that launched, actually ended up launching a company that I founded with him called Row 7 Seeds that is about selecting for flavor. It's about um, uh, having, again, the North Star of, of a varieties of vegetables and grains that sing with flavor. But the experience with Michael Mazurik launched a, a deeper appreciation for a subject that I didn't didn't feel well versed in, and actually had never really taken the time to think through, and that is seeds and seed breeding. Um, and so that it was kind of a late inning revelation, and, and late in the in the book when I arrived at seeds, because here I was searching for the recipe for delicious food that starts in the field. And what I recognized, uh, again, too a little bit too late uh, in, in retrospect, was that the flavor and the recipe really starts with seed before it hits the field. And the, the end of the story or the, the, the fast forward over 10 years that, that he came out with a squash called Honey Nut, which is a shrunken butternut squash that has tremendous amounts of flavor and nutrition. 
And now it is sold coast to coast. It is in going into Walmart this year. It's in Costco. It's in some of the biggest, in the biggest supermarket retailers in the United States. And that happened just because of a conversation. Um, and it's what led to, again, to the seed company. Yeah, and it happened because of a conversation with you. And you then took it to the G9 Chef Summit. And you talked to the most right. influential chefs right. in the world, like Massimo Batura. Right. It, well, it wasn't me. It was just I was showing it off because I was so excited about it. And it was the chefs who got excited about it and then started social media and, and well, exactly. doing all the things chefs do. And, and that's what gave it the lift. But there are two important things there that I want to unpack. One is the influence, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But first of all, let's just kind of talk about it's ba- basically it's about genetic manipulation, isn't it, of a seed that has its own stories. It's about creating a new product. Now, a lot of people who really don't know your work will go, hang on a second, this is GM food. It's really not. It's quite the opposite. Can you explain why that is? The difference between GMOs and what we do is we're doing really old world uh, seed breeding and selection that our great, great, great grandparents did, uh, but in speeded up time because there's technology now and, 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 and we know what we're doing and we're not stabbing in the dark. And so you have all of the tools available to you to select for um, disease resistance, to select for flavor, nutrition, and all the things that we should be selecting for. But unfortunately, seed companies generally don't select for because seed companies are in the hands of these chemical, multinational chemical companies. That's the truth. And they make their money on the intervention. And so, in fact, they're very motivated to create seeds that are kind of dumbed down, one size fits all. They want the seed to grow in England as they want it to grow in southern United States and Canada and China. So that's a one size fits all approach. And those are generally seeds that are that produce plants that are weak and that need the intervention. Yeah, it's about the intention, isn't it? You're doing it for the deliciousness and they're doing it for the money making. And you're trying to sort of roll back uh, the whole purpose of farming and feeding people and making us think, hang on, it doesn't have to be like this. And it can't be like this, linking it back to the climate emergency. Yeah, I like what you said at the second part. Right, exactly. It can't be like this because we, we, the carrying capacity of the earth doesn't allow it. But I, I would also say, you know, I don't want to be too... Um, old world about it. I, I don't have a problem with seeds performing very well for farmers. In fact, if anything, that's what why we started the company. It's a negotiation between flavor, nutrient density, and the ability for this to scale in a way that farmers actually make money. Because if they're not making money growing it, then we're just an heirloom. You're just you're supporting heirlooms. And actually, you know, old, very old varieties of seeds, which are important to keep around because they have genetic material that's very important to us as we face challenges like climate change in the future. Critical to keep that around. It's also critical to note that those old, old varieties of seeds tend to be less productive and tend to be less disease resistant in some ways. And therefore, uh, you know, are very expensive to grow and, and are actually pretty elitist. So your my advocacy for for only the kinds of things our great grandparents used to grow uh, tends to put you in a in a very rarefied world. And my my interest is in working with breeders that are taking those genetics and and moving them along in a way that allows a farmer to remain profitable. So an example of something that is the trickle down effect. You know, you start playing with different ideas. You talk about them at your chef summit, and then they do trickle down eventually to 
you know the the Leon cafes in this country the the the, the many more vegan cafes that are playing with different flavors like cauliflower rice for example that I saw on your Twitter that's the idea isn't it yeah that cauliflower rice is is now in uh, Chipotle which is a fast food joint in all over America but that started in a in well, we were doing it many years ago. As many chefs were turning that into, I don't know who inspired who, but um, those ideas. You know, we have. Um, you know, I had before COVID forty six cooks. It was in a, it was an R and D laboratory really for these kinds of ideas. And so, do they get dumbed down? Yes, but do they end up infusing themselves into the mainstream food culture? I think more often than not, they do. Uh, and that is a that is a top down approach. I'm a bottom up guy, as I'm sure you are. It's everybody's bottom up and, and democratic. But in this sense, there there's an argument to be made for top-down, and um, I think that's what you're talking about, and that's a role that chefs and restaurants can play in the future of good food. Yeah, and you talk about chefs as conductors um, in your book. You know, what do you mean by conductors? Why did you use that particular word? Where's the orchestra? Who's who's part of this orchestra? Well, if there's if if you are um, uh, supporting farmers in your ecology, your environment, your, your locality, um, then your job is to listen to what the farmers need to grow to produce the healthiest soil and the healthiest landscape. That's usually a very large diversity in a particularly timed rotation based on the seasons. And so the job of the chef, or the job I sort of got myself to to see as as a role for a chef of the future is to to orchestrate how to support those crops in a way that that keeps the farm running at the highest level of of ecological functioning and uh the highest level of profitability for the farmer so so more and more my kitchen is filled with the kinds of crops that farmers organic farmers really need to grow um like rotations of brassicas, like rotations of cover crops that we're, we are constantly trying to figure out how to infuse into our menu in a way that, that balances the ecological and environmental demands. And, and that's a balance. And that's why the orchestra, the, I like the idea of conductor because it's balancing all these different notes in, in, in a way that we call cuisine. I mean, that's cuisine. Cuisine is balancing it because it, it lasts forever and it's, or it lasts for a long time if it's a good cuisine and that's the best cuisines do. They are, they are timeless. And that's about balancing the demands of the landscape with deliciousness and enjoyment and culture. Um, so chefs play a big role in that. What part do the waiters play in that orchestra? Are they the, the chorus, for example? They, they tell the stories of what's going on the plate. That's a really important part for you, isn't it, the education? It is, yeah. No, it is. You know, I, we, we, we invest a tremendous amount of time in the ambassadors to these ideas, and that, that, is, um, that is for sure the, a, a well-trained, but it's, it's not the training, it's the well-informed, the well-educated front of the house and so what we ended up doing at my restaurant in the last seven years really after the book was to have the cook serve at not out of you know not not out of the sense that that front of the house waiters or captains um can't do it uh it's that to communicate the messages that we're talking about in the context of pleasure and delight and even hedonism coming from the the young energetic cooks who are learning this in real time because they spend a lot of time on farms and this farm surrounding this restaurant is a farm it's very infectious and energetic 
And that was a lesson I learned is that, that, you know, we're so surrounded by fake messages in our, in our lives, in our world. And to be, to be face to face in a moment when you're not consumed with social media or watching cable TV or, or on the telephone, uh, which is one of the great gifts of dining is that it's actually frowned upon to be, to be occupied on a device. Um, that is, you know, that's, that's a real gift. And, and if you think about it, how many times in the course of our week, month, do you get that actual purity of, of opportunity? You don't. And so there's a moment of consciousness that's available to you. And if somebody, a bright-eyed 22-year-old from somewhere in the world, which is where most of my cooks were from, shows up at your table smiling about what he or she learned that day in the field... Well, that, that stays with you. It makes the food more delicious. It's like you can't, you can't frown on food like that. So part of it was a tactic of mine to become a more popular chef than I was. Uh, but, but a lot of it was also just messaging. Messaging is, is, is a key, key component here. And I think that's one of the things that we're all missing so much in lockdown is actual contact with people who really love what they're doing, who love to feed. Let's go into your second food moment. It's the beginning of the book. It's... It's the real moment, and it's the moment, fast forward, when your customers come in, your guests come into the restaurant, and they taste barber bread made from barber wheat. Tell us that story. Well, it started by my buying from uh, wheat from a, from a farmer named Klaus Martens, and we just we test drove a lot of different wheats and a lot of different farmers, and he consistently, his wheat was just consistently uh, jaw-droppingly delicious in this bread that I became quite well-known for because it was, back then, local grain, which was not a very popular concept, and it was 100% uh, freshly milled whole grain, which also, back then, was a rare thing to do. But the flavor, the, the reason that the flavor was so good was because it was fresh milled and because it was grown so... In, in such a proper way. And I, when I set out to write the book, I decided to write a recipe for the best farm to table. And I wanted to start with grains and with Klaus because I was so impressed by him. And I went to his farm and I was standing in the middle of 1,600 acres and looking around and realizing that I didn't see any wheat. I saw a little bit of wheat, I saw, but I saw a lot of barley and rye and buckwheat and millet. And, and Right there, just right in that moment, I realized I was an emperor without clothes. I was, I was arguing for local grains, but I was only buying wheat. I wasn't buying everything else. And what I learned in the next, you know, next hour, but really I've been learning for the last dozen years and more, is that those other grains that Klaus was growing, um, he was growing because he was looking for the kind of... Um, soil fertility that is needed um, and and soil fertility in part comes from certain grains at certain moments of the year with great rotation so everything I was looking at surrounding the 1600 acres was a meticulously timed rotation of of, of what we might call lowly grains uncelebrated grains but of course every cuisine in the world celebrates one or two of those um, in their cuisine because it was necessary to grow you couldn't grow wheat after wheat after wheat you can now because you have chemicals to intervene and you have, you, have, you have a system that allows for that, actually only encourages it. You can't possibly rotate, but unless you're organic, and that's why it costs more. So you, you know, the, the wheat that I was buying was so expensive and so delicious because he was growing everything else to support the wheat. And that yeah. was a great lesson for me. But I wasn't supporting the pie. I was supporting the tiny, rarefied 1% slice. And wheat 
you know, we are a wheat culture. Wheat is a very expensive crop. I don't mean that in a transactional way. I mean it from a soil fertility perspective. To grow wheat is very, it's very hard on the soil and it requires a lot of fertility. In fact, that's why in part wheat is so nutritious and so delicious. Um, I mean, a tomato is one of the great, you know, users of fertility. Another reason why it's so delicious. So, so you need to restore, you need, that's a bank, you know, you're borrowing from the bank, the soil bank, and you need to, you need to pay back the bank. And that, and that's what I was missing from my calculus. So I returned to, to not just make barber bread, not just make the whole wheat bread, uh, but to, to create a suite of breads and dishes that supported Klaus's rye, millet, buckwheat, barley, and all the rest. Yeah. And of course, you know, we've witnessed a massive interest in bread. It's almost like it's become such a metaphor for our times, you know, that we've been eating bread that hasn't been delicious. We've been buying bread from supermarkets. We have no connection with where it comes from. And our soils are totally depleted. And we're facing a climate emergency. What you're saying, what Klaus was doing, you know, you explain how actually those crops trap the nitrogen in the soil they feed the soil so that the bread actually tastes of the the intention it's not even just the crops it's the intention as well no that's it that's it and it's the intention of every quiz culture around the world because what what are we talking about in 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 europe barley into wheat was the rotation you had to grow wheat you had to grow barley barley was the great uh, breakup of, of disease cycles, uh, but that's where you get alcohol and bread. You know, and, and th- those were correspondence. Just in, in Japan, you you grew rice, but you also had to grow buckwheat and barley as rotation crops. Well, you know, the Japanese didn't say you better eat your buckwheat if you want to have your bowl of rice. They created soba noodles, so you, you know you 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 have a you, you are not. Uh, shamed into eating that or forced or Dan Barber isn't saying you better eat that to be ecologically conscious. You're eating it because soba is so delicious. And that's, but that's true of all, you know, I mean, and, uh, it's the global South is about corn, but it's also about beans because you need the nitrogen for the corn. So, uh, you know, but all those things are so delicious that you don't think about them as obligatory. You think them, uh, you think about them as, as both traditional and, and, and part of what it means to be, you name it, Mexican or, or, or as it were, Japanese or, you know, um, uh, uh, French is 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 a dairy culture, uh, of course, but it's also, uh, you know, beans and, and beans. Peasant, I mean, farming French is all about restoring nitrogen in the soil through through legumes. So anyway, this this is you know everywhere in the world except in the United States, except in Westernized. Well, and here, um, and and Klaus makes a, a really interesting point where he asks, "When do you start making a child?" And he uses that as a metaphor again for the wheat. And he talks about going back a hundred years, looking at soil yeah. and everything around it, and the people who have worked. Yeah, it's, an out old, on. it's an old men and it's an old Mennonite, Mennonite yeah. uh, saying, which is which is when do you start raising a child? Yeah. And the answer is one hundred years before yeah. the child is born. Yeah. And so you, you start putting into place the culture uh, for that child a hundred years before it's born. And that's the, the idea with soil yeah. is that you are, you are creating a bank account that you need to think about in biological terms, which is about a hundred years. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. tea people and wine people talk in this way of, of yeah. terroir. It's not just about the land. Yeah. It's the people who live on the land. It's the people who pick the, the leaves. It's their relationships. Everything speaks for sure. of, of, of that food. Yeah. Your third 
food moment is um, the, the fresh milling flour at Blue Hill. Tell us about that. Why did you choose that? Of all the millions of ideas. You know, it, 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 to be honest with you, the, 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 the day that we milled the eight-row flint corn preceded my Klaus standing on the hilltop overlooking the farm and realizing I was an emperor without clothes. And I say that only because it, it's important chronologically. It's like, you know, before I went to Klaus, I, my awakening on grains and local grains was about growing a variety called Eight Row Flint, which a philanthropist gave to us to grow here at Stone Barns. And Jack Algier, the farmer, uh, grew it um, and and brought it to me uh, sometime in, in October when it was dry. Uh, and, you know, I'd been looking forward to it. I'd been looking outside the window and, it, you know, it was enormous stocks and beautiful. I learned a little about the history and was very excited. And then realized when it came in the door that it was dry corn. I mean, that's how, that's how idiotic I was. This is 20 years ago, but still not that long ago. And um, I, needed to, I needed to grind it. Uh, and I didn't have a mill. So we did it in a blender. We made flour in a blender. Then I bought a mill, a used mill on eBay. And um, we started milling corn, and I would make this polenta, and the cooks would <laughs> sit there stirring the polenta, and, and everyone would just look at each other like it was August, chewing on a, on a you know, like we, we chainsaw our way through those co- corn cobs. It was so sweet and so corny. It's crazy. And I was like, well, that's fresh milling. You know, I mean, it's, it's the variety, it's the, it's the soil, and then it's the fresh milling. And it was the fresh milling that unleashes those oils and those those flavors. And so that got me to um, do that same thing with wheat, which is where I got to the emmer wheat, which is where I got to Klaus. <laughs> but then realizing, well, it's not just the wheat or the corn, it's all these other crops that are producing it. Okay, so there I was, there I was off and running with supporting, as we say, you support the whole animal, nose tail of the whole animal. I started to think about nose tail of a farm. What's nose tail of a farm? Well, it's all these other crops that are often undesired for some reason, um, in this culture, uh, that a chef needs to popularize um, because the organic farming community um, uh, needs to profit from it instead of using it as a loss. And by the way, that is what I left out of the Klaus uh, story: is that those the millet, the rye, the buckwheat, everything I was looking at that was surrounding me. Um, it wasn't so much that I wasn't supporting it. I mean, that was that was that's that's a big piece of it. The other piece of it is that Klaus was selling those grains essentially at a loss for bag feed, for animal feed. Um, so all of those incredibly delicious, nutrient-dense, soil-supporting grains were going to feed pigs and chickens. And what he was charging me for was that tiny slice of the pie. And so not only is that elitist, it's just it's a crazy system. And so, you know, as I said, I, I, I made broad changes after that. But it really started with the experience of tasting and smelling freshly milled grain and that started with yeah. corn it's a wake up isn't it it's you you're rolling back the years to look at a lot of the old traditions and it feels like we've been asleep for what 50 60 75 years actually since pesticides started uh, depleting our soils but what you're proposing is something quite visionary and new a new cuisine of, of really connecting the dots so that we really understand food in the way that, you know, the French do with their pot au feu and you use the Italian examples and the Mexican examples. What, can you explain what that means to people in Britain who are probably the 
the ones with the least stable food cultures? The least stable food cultures. So, so just define that and tell me what... Well, okay, in America, you've got lots and lots of different stable cultures. In Britain, we've got a an unstable food culture. It's getting better the more diverse our population becomes. It becomes embedded, but it takes a long time. Yeah. You know, we, we lost our sense of, of who we are through our food, through the Industrial Revolution years, many, you know, hundreds of years ago. Right. And we, we haven't got it yet. We don't have a sense of who we are through our food, like the Italians do, like the French do. And the vision is of this new cuisine that you write about that connects us more, co- more yeah. coherently to where the food comes from, that we understand and appreciate the stories that make up our food, which means that we have more respect for it, which means we more care more about where it comes from, ultimately care more about the impact of food production on the planet. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that's where we're moving. Uh, I mean, it's definitely where restaurants are moving. Uh, I mean, if you look at restaurants today, you, you're, you're, you're looking at or restaurants pre-COVID anyway, was, you know, the, 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 the leading restaurants, the restaurants that were, were leading the conversation about food for the future were all about um, what was local. I mean, I, you know, what, what, was, what was specific to place. I mean, 20 years ago, when I opened up Blue Hill, I had to have a certain set of ingredients on the menu to be considered even worthy of, of being noticed. You know, steak, foie gras, caviar, lobster, those kinds of things. 20 and 30 years ago weren't just um, weren't just important they were required yeah and I meet you know people all the time chefs food writers all the time who are pumping this message because they love it not because they feel they have a a moral imperative it doesn't feel worthy but it's because it's all about taste and flavor your fourth food moment is about that I mean in the most extraordinary terms you talk about Alain Ducasse one of the best chefs in the world having a super taste experience with your Blue Hill butter now this is the exactly what you were just saying you know in the old days foie gras uh, you know, people would super yeah. taste the foie gras and they would taste the gavage, the, 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 the force feeding of the goose and think it a good thing. And there's a wonderful passage in your book about how you find natural, ethical foie gras, foie gras, as you call it, which we're not going to go into because we haven't got time today. But tell us about what Alain Ducasse could taste in your butter. Uh, I had an experience where uh, Monsieur Ducasse, Chef Ducasse, came to the restaurant uh, for actually for a photo shoot, and I prepared him uh, a, a bit of breakfast. It was early morning, and I I, I, I baked that bread, the Emmer Emmer bread from Klaus, uh, with with butter uh, that I made from uh, milk from Blue Hill Farm, which is my family dairy, and I was very excited about the opportunity to have him taste the butter because it was 100% grass-fed. I think we have some of the best grass around and some produce some of the best milk. And so, anyway, he tasted the butter after a big build-up, in my mind, of weeks of preparing for this. And he seemed underwhelmed by it. And, and that led to a series of questions from him, which were, at in in the moment, um, you know, uh, surprising and and and... and you know, kind of nonsensical, but then, and they were questions like, you know, has it rained a lot lately where the cows were grazing? And, and actually it had, and, the, and he was sort of suggesting that it had because the butter tasted to him, I think, a little washed out, although he didn't say it that way, just his facial expression 
it seemed like the butter was maybe a little weak tasting. But he was asking about the rain and the rain. There actually had been torrential rainstorms, and so amazingly, he had he had sort of predicted, you know, he had sort of tasted the weather, which is I just thought was unbelievable. And then and then he followed up like a few minutes later with with was the was the was the butter made in in a in a robocoop in a food processor it wasn't made by hand and i that one he was suggesting again that 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 it tasted machine made and i corrected him and said no 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 this was made by hand we we only make our butters by hand and then the right before he left he asked his third question which was you know were, were the cows grazing close to the barn or were they grazing in a field far away from the barn which i'll never forget i didn't even under it took like three times for him to translate the question his translator to get the question i just you know i i said close to the barn because the cows were were almost always close to, were always close to the barn they were right outside my the window and so anyway he left and then you know like a week later i was upstairs in the pastry kitchen and one of my interns was um making the, the butter for service in a robocoop and i I went over to the young, so what are you doing? And he said, oh, chef, I, I learned that I could make the butter twice as fast if I make it in the Robocoop. And so what Ducasse had not just tasted the weather, he tasted the machine, um, amazingly. Um, and then two weeks later, I was at Blue Hill Farm, and, and I woke up early and was looking outside the window, and I didn't see any cows. And that's when I asked our farmer, Sean Stanton, where the cows were and he said oh I the last couple of months I've been doing this experiment of grazing them in the in field number seven which is about two miles away because it's the least fertilized field and I want to bring that grass back and so I need the manure and so we've been walking the cows back and forth and Alan Ducasse so, knew you know, all that Ducasse batted three to three yeah, yeah, I mean that is yeah. quite extraordinary you think what what does he have on his tongue that can translate that it's a it's a whole language it's amazing and, but actually, how fantastic if we could all learn to taste so much more of the food that we're eating to understand that story. I think that's the point. I'm glad you just said it. And sometimes I miss that in, in telling that story. I miss that point, which is the point. It's a, We're never going to be Ducasse, and he's a Jedi. But we could be a lot more like Ducasse. And, and to your point, how much more connected would we be yeah. to the world around us, uh, to the agriculture? And, and what the, delight that would be. And, and what a pleasure yeah. because connection is pleasure and that's what food is about so removing it from connection is to not taste what is possible and uh, you know that's my wish for the future of, of, of food is that we become more connected to how it's grown because I think it'll taste better and be a lot more pleasurable thanks for listening you can buy The Third Plate and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com next week I'm staying with world changing chefs as I pop over to Galway for a little food on the edge with J.P. McMahon. I'll see you then.